It's just past midnight on St. Patrick's Day in Boston, Massachusetts. The year, 1990. The crime, half a billion dollars worth of art stolen in the middle of the night from a small museum in the Fenway. The made-for-Netflix series. This is a robbery. Isabella's Stewart Cotton Museum was a auntie's delight. St. Patty's Day. Two men dressed as police officers show up at the door. And they say, this is a robbery. Millions of dollars of artwork. There's no shortage of suspects. The Italian mob. Whitey Bulger. The IRA. There's got to be a way to figure out where these paintings went. You could potentially get $10 million. When I see those frames, I feel they are waiting for the work to come back. Yeah, my name is Colin Barnacle. I uh, produced and directed uh, This is a Robbery on Netflix. And I noticed on your brother Nick's um, Twitter account, he retweeted something from who I assume is also your brother about a movie you made called All Around Cool Guy. Uh, How early were you guys making films and what got that started? Um, All Around Cool Guy, yeah. So we, I remember my dad had come home with a, um, like a little camcorder that he got like for free in like a barter trade. And we were playing around with it when, oh God, we must've been 10, 11. Uh, And um, we started playing around with it, uh, making kind of movies. You couldn't really make movies back then, like because there wasn't iMovie on Apple or anything like that. So once that came out, I was probably, you know, senior high school we started to cut things together um before then it was really just very verite films it was you know you had to whatever you shot that was the take uh but we started young we started filming stuff yeah real young probably 10 11 somewhere in there um usually filming our little brother in stupid one act uh type situations do you think growing up in lincoln informed the way you make films at all yeah, I do. We grew up right next to, um, there was a graveyard on one side of us and a farm in the back. And kind of like spatial awareness and kind of quietness, you know, that you don't have to lay everything under with like a, a, a video or music track. Um, that really helped in the, the idea of, uh, you know, using space to your advantage, using scenery to your advantage. Um, I think that's always a key, having a sense of pl- sense of place, making, you know, the a character of the location. And do you have a favorite film or movie director who really inspired you then or now? Yeah, I, don't, I, I remember our dad uh, took us to go see Indiana Jones uh the one that came out in 1989 i was like three and we couldn't get in apparently because i was too young um but we used to go see all the harrison ford movies my dad used to take us out of school to go see those um i would if you're you know i didn't really start to think about making films in terms of you know emulating somebody until later i think growing up it was more or less just connecting with you know the story that you like um i remember seeing um in 1998 there was uh 
two movies came out uh, uh, right around the same time about the same basic subject, a, a Thin Red Line and Saving Private Ryan. And they're both about, you know, basically platoons in, in World War II, ones in the Pacific, ones in the Europe um, theater. But it showed me that, and they're two very different films, but it showed me that you can have a very different um, look and feel and narrative structure um, to two similar type situations and moments in time and they can both be good uh and both films are very good but they're very different so i saw that and i remember thinking like oh you don't need to be very standardized with what you're putting on camera so now transitioning into talking about this is a robbery this is an older case but even i was born eight years after it i feel like i've always known it when do you first remember mm -hmm. hearing of the case I think I first remember hearing about the case around 1997, probably. Um, started gaining a little bit more traction in that time period. I'd always kind of known it. I, I always put it as, you know, when somebody asks, hey, what is the first movie you saw? And it's kind of like, oh, man, I don't really remember. But it's, I know it was, you know, probably around this time period and around these movies. You can't really pinpoint that kind of thing. Um, I, I feel like it was probably mid to late 90s, but definitely around 1997, you were aware of it by name. Um, but we were always kind of aware that there was this grand art heist that had happened. Um, and I know when Thomas Crown Affair came out, the Pierce Brosnan one, that um, we always kind of assumed that was what the what, what it was like. Um, probably because Dennis Leary's in it and he's from Boston and we're like, oh, okay, well, he's from Worcester, but, um, you know, we always kind of figured that that was kind of, you know, the basis of it, but it's not at all. Was it a conversation in your household at all? Uh, yeah, it, it started to be, um, my mom really liked the museum for the museum's sake. My dad liked the criminality <laughs> of it. Um, so it was more a discussion about that than about like the de details of the actual crime or, or trying to guess where the art went. I think it was one of these things that just kind of operates in the background of, you know, you know, when my parents used to have grown up dinners and my brother and I would sneak downstairs and kind of on the banister, we'd listen to what they were talking about. This was always one of the subjects they were talking about. And the story, like you said, is incredibly unique to Boston. Do you think mm -hmm. you would have had struggles creating it without your background? Do you think you were at any advantage getting people to talk? Yeah, definitely. With a hundred percent, we were at an advantage from being from the, um, you know, Metro Boston area. Uh, this would have been, there was a lot of shorthand with a lot of people, not even people who eventually got on camera, but even background stuff. Um, my uncle was a um, Boston police detective, so it helped kind of, you know, bridge the gap between authorities, you know, who might be reticent to talk even on background. And, you know, um, even those in the in the criminal world uh, who had come, come across my uncle. Um, it's a very weirdly tight-knit community in the in Boston. Like all the criminals know the cops, all the cops know the criminals. So it was always kind of one degree of separation away. It wasn't very hard to read through an affidavit or a judicial finding. And we'd find names that we knew um, 
and you just kind of pull off the thread from there you know you know one name you call that person you try to get another phone number and then you go from there so i think it would have been really really hard to have done this if you weren't from um massachusetts did your uncle at all help like were you just like oh my uncle is this person and then someone would be more willing to open up yeah yes exactly yeah um you know uh there were you know authorities who just you know they just didn't either want to talk or were reticent of talking because it was you know 30 years ago and you don't want to speak and screw something up and you know have that be a moment so you know i think there's a lot of reticence even um for for people who want to talk to talk about something that happened 30 years ago because of the idea that you know you don't want to look bad and you don't want to say something that might be out of tune in a case that is not yet uh, adjudicated so um there was some reticence there but definitely being able to name drop a little bit um especially with my uncle uh, helped your previous projects with nick are pretty universally relatable like baseball billy joel i think every american probably loves both of those things um <laughs> What obstacles did you face in such a great genre shift? And was there any similarity in your process for this and your process for those? Yeah, the genre shift was tough. We we began doing sports docs basically because I had, it was just, it was a, almost like it was a job. Uh, I had worked at the Boston Red Sox and our first thing ever was doing something on the Boston Red Sox. It felt like an easy way in. And then we got another baseball job from there and another one. And, we really obviously we like going to the ballpark and getting paid to do it so we kept doing it but the genre shift was really difficult i mean i remember we first pitched this project in 2014 started working on it in 2015 and we were the smallest uh people in the pond so to speak in terms of you know true crime genre after we started to pitch and we were pitching everybody and they weren't really taking it seriously <laughs> but we pitched everybody vice hbo and they just were lukewarm on it it was something on paper and eight parts we had originally pitched it as an eight part series and then around 2015 and in 2016 we decided to shoot some stuff ourselves uh to try to make a quote unquote sizzle reel or a trailer and we showed that around and from that we got a loan to make a pilot and we made a pilot that was finished in December 2017 and then we showed that around for a full year before it finally got to Netflix in the fall of 2018 so it was a long process and we had to do a lot of work ourselves it was like a 45 minute pilot which it adheres pretty much to what episode 1 is in the series But yeah, it was uh it was tough and it was tough because, you know, we were trying to do it, nobody was taking it seriously. And then as we started to do it, other projects of this nature started to come up and you're still the smallest fish in the pond and you're trying to kill Vice or HBO like, "No, this is, you know, we're doing this." And they're like, "Huh? No." Um so uh yeah, it was an uphill battle, but it, it got there. What made you guys keep fighting? We knew it was a good story and we knew that we had um some access to it. Not just in terms of, you know, being able to film inside the museum itself, but also in terms of, you know, talking to uh 
district attorneys, um, police officers, um, even criminal elements. Um, we we knew the city well from through my dad and through my uncle and through my mom. So we uh, we knew we could tell it with a a voice that was uh, local, and you know it's an intriguing uh, case. So I part I, a large part of it is kind of just the obsessive nature of wanting to do something like this, you know, solve an unsolved mystery or shed light on an unsolved mystery. So I feel like it was it was mostly obsessive, but it was also because we we felt like we had it we could tell it with a unique voice. From Miles Connor to like the real heartbreak I felt by Anne Holly, was there any sense of intimidation making this project based on like how really personal it is, and did outside expectations impact your filmmaking? Yeah, so some people obviously didn't want to talk about certain subjects. Uh, you know, Anne Holly was tremendous. She was extremely open um, about her experience during it. It was a really, and it wasn't just like that day. It was a really tough couple of years for her. It was pretty much 1990 to, you know, 95, 96. It was her and you know, two other board members really running, you know, getting leads and having to vet those out. They were pretty much the lightning rods on it, and and that's during the time period where she also is trying to build up the museum. So, you know, it's it's uh. It was difficult for her, and I, I feel I feel like going through that was was not ideal for her to relive that period in in her life. And she was incredible in terms of just giving that experience to us. There were other things like you, you know Miles didn't want to touch on some subjects because of you know he didn't want to be arrested again. <laughs> and there were other people who we talked to just didn't had the same sentimentality, didn't want to go on camera. On camera is a very different thing than, you know, just talking to somebody over the phone and having a recorded conversation. Like we're entering your space with cameras and lights, and putting a mic on you, it's uh, intimidating. And so a lot of people who would talk over the phone just didn't want to make the next leap to being on camera. And that's fine it turned out all right so but there is that kind of intense intimacy that you have when you're sitting down talking to somebody and everything's being recorded and there's people in your living room that you do not know there's you know a sound man and a producer and I'm there and there's a camera operator it's something a lot of people just felt was a bridge too far and that stems directly from the fact that they didn't want to misspeak or it was a little intimate. They didn't want to look like they were out of their depth or, you know, they didn't want to say something that would get them pulled into a, a grand jury. And that's fair. There were clearly a lot of people involved that you couldn't interview for a lot of reasons. Is there anyone living or dead who you would have interviewed given the chance? Yeah, given the chance, I mean, so Richard Abath, the guard, was like a five-year process of calling his lawyer almost every week. And he responded to questions, but only typewritten and over email, which was, you know, you would think it'd be, I mean, that's on the record as much as being um, on cameras on the record, but 
And we almost got him. And then sometime around August 2019, uh, he just, he didn't want to, he was going to be on camera, it seemed. And then he, he just, he fell off. And I don't know if that was, had to do with, you know, being told not to do it or if he just kind of decided, you know, I, I know he had some personal issues around that time period. He might have just washed his hands of it and said it is what it is. Um, I know him would have been nice. Um, and then there was, you know, if I could interview anybody alive or dead, you know, Bobby Donati would be a good one. Um uh, I don't think he would be a very good interview, though. He wouldn't. <laughs> he wouldn't really say anything. So, uh, I feel like Richard or Bass would probably be, you know, if you're going to be, who would be a good interview and would tell some uh, intimacy of the story. That would be nice. But yeah, like interviewing Bobby Donati or Vinny Ferrara would be great. In you know, it'd be a great thing to sit down with them but they're not going to tell you anything <laughs> so i was surprised to learn that cutting out the paintings would be more time consuming i always thought like oh that'd be so easy that makes sense why they did that was there anything mm -hmm. you learned throughout the process of this that was really surprising to you yeah actually what was the most surprising was um that the story kind of receded from the headlines for like a four or five year period that there, there was a like we, retrospectively, you look back and you go, you know, you can't sell the art or you can't move the art because it's so iconic and you can kind of um, like who's going to have one of these works and not know what it is. But I, you know, this is before Google, before cell phones, before instant access to information. Um, most of these works, pretty much just the premiere and the Storm of the Sea were the only ones really on the front page. And those in black and white can't really see the sizing of any of them but i was surprised by the, the kind of the dearth of information put out to the public basically between 91 and you know 97 i mean the globe didn't even cover um the anniversary really in 95 96 or 97 so uh it wasn't it wasn't widely talked about so when you start to understand that you can kind of see how you know this art might have been moved fairly quickly after the robbery within a two-year time period um i was i was surprised by by that that i always kind of assumed that you know you hear oh you can't move the art because it's very iconic but it's only iconic if people know what it is if, if there's no coverage on it and all the pictures are in black and white when they are covered uh, and they're not iconic and they can be moved. Without spoiling the series, your theory points in a clear direction. And I believe your brother Nick told Jim Browdy that he believes these paintings will show up in some form. What do you mm -hmm. think will force their recovery? Yeah, so I actually think it's just the idea of people being more knowledgeable about you know, the crime itself. That was one of our main goals, to show real intimate portrayal of that night, um, which means you're showing a real intimate portrayal of the art itself. I know that um, there was one suspect that nobody could find a, uh, a picture for. Nobody had it, not even the investigators. Uh, I don't think the FBI even had a photo of them. Um, 
and we were able to contact one of the family members who lived with this person and this guy was pretty much the main suspect and has been for a while and we contacted one of the family members uh and the family member gave us uh, a photo and then asked you know what's it for and we said oh because of the gardner robbery that you know his name comes up in and they had no idea and this is a person who had lived with the suspect for 20 years uh you know so and they just were like oh yeah oh uh i didn't really know about that so and this was a, an intimate family member that lived with this person so i just feel like there's a lot of people out there who came into contact with um these people that might know something more than uh you know and, and they just they just haven't spoken about it or don't know about it or you know one of the degad drawings could be on their wall and they just figure it's a you know another piece of art they inherited from grandma but um it's not <laughs> so i think that would be one of the uh things that hopefully come out of it which is you know also returning some of the art to to the uh to the museum so you're currently number 2 in america i'm just wondering like are you surprised at how successful this is going and is there anyone you've seen mention the series that you're like wow i can't believe they saw it yeah uh i'm yeah we're very happy to have number number 2 i think thunder force is number 1 melissa mccarthy you're never going to beat melissa mccarthy uh she's incredible <laughs> so i think we got a and this is so bostonian but when they mentioned it uh on the red sox game when dave o'brien and dennis eckersley mentioned it on the red sox game fourth inning of uh the opening game against baltimore in baltimore i'm talking about stuff we did on the day off i watched a netflix documentary a superb documentary called this is a robbery it's about a monumental art heist back in 1990 right in boston at the garden museum I've got about an hour to go so if anybody has seen the whole thing don't tell me how it ends. I want huh. to find it. and and none of this art has ever been recovered. I mean Rembrandt and Vermeer's like 200 million dollars. Who did it? The Bar uh, they, Bar they, Barnacle Brothers do that? I believe thing? the Barnacle yes. Brothers did. They do they do phenomenal yeah. work. It's a terrific piece. I got hooked on it. I started watching it the other night. I'm like good huh. stop. Happened right and those those pieces of art are missing to this day. How much money involved? Like a couple hundred million couple, bucks. Whoa! That's all. A lot of fun to watch. I've gotten hooked on Netflix. Period. Uh, when they mentioned it, I was watching the game, <laughs> so I was like, "Oh, this is great!" That was a that was a big one for us. Do you have any advice for any like upcoming directors, producers, especially people from the Massachusetts area? Uh yeah, my advice would be that um even if you have a good idea, it's just an idea, like a pitch book doesn't work all the time. Um especially if they don't know who it didn't work for us. <laughs> uh we had a very good pitch book, very detailed. We did a lot of informative work on it. Looked really good and nobody was really taking us seriously in these meetings. Um so I feel you got to get whatever project that you want to get done to an inflection point where it's basically just you go into the meeting for a yes or no from the other side um and a lot of that has to do with you know 
shooting, uh, you know, making a, a sizzle reel, uh, a trailer, um, shooting some character cut downs, you know, of people you want in your project. Um, certainly if it's narrative, you know, a script, but also maybe some, um, some scenes, um, some mock scenes. We had to do all that for this project. We had to film uh, character cut downs. We had to show how we were going to do the reenactments, film those. Um, we had to do a pitch book. We had to do a, a series outline. We had to do a budget. We had to, um, you know, do a call sheet list. Uh, we had to uh, show the locations that we wanted to shoot the reenactments and like I said do I think four or five of those setups so we had to do a lot of preparatory work before we even got Netflix to you know give the check mark so um, yeah the more work that you can do before you take any sort of meeting or go to pitch just make sure it's at an inflection point where the person on the other side of the table can say yes or no to it fairly quickly thank you so much for taking oh, yeah. to uh, speak with me yeah, do you have anything else that like we didn't cover? I could really talk to you about this for a long time, but is there anything yeah. else we didn't hit that's small that you want to mention? Uh, no, I do think that the film, so we did, we, part of it was invest, we had to investigate every single theory to make sure that what we put on camera was what, what we thought was right, what we thought had the most evidentiary finding to it. Um, but we did every theory from the, something that's completely improbable to rising up to maybe you know it, it could be probable and we had to vet all those police reports affidavits judicial findings going to courthouses a lot of you know just walking around going into courthouses talking to county clerks stuff like that for things that didn't even make it on film looks like 90 percent of what we did didn't even make it on on film but we had to do that um, in order to put down what we thought was the most likely scenario of that night. It doesn't mean it's the only scenario. So um, I'd be interested to see what, you know, basically people dig up on Reddit boards because, you know, we think we're correct, but it doesn't mean we are correct. I mean, it's still unsolved. So um, I would like to think that we are, but uh, there's always that, you know, until the paintings are found, everything's a theory, right? Rumor has it we might be seeing a second installment of This is a Robbery sooner than you think, but no official word from Netflix yet. If you're enjoying the music you're listening to, special thanks to Fall Burke of Andover, Massachusetts. Fall's music can be caught at fallburke.bandcamp.com, and you can catch more from Fall in my upcoming movie. I look forward to seeing you on the other side of the lens. This is Julia Donahue, and that was Was It Wicked?